The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. This morning, we're still on the Sermon on the Mount. And really, although we've walked away from it a little bit, it seemed like going into uh, further on in Matthew, when we're talking about loving our enemies and beyond that, uh, what it means to live this out, we're going to be coming into chapter 6 today of the Sermon on the Mount. And what this talks about, and we're going to, let me, let me do this. So, so what this is going to be, this is what I kind of entitled it, Freedom Through Prayer, this morning. Freedom through prayer. Now, most of us would not even begin to question whether we feel free in Christ or not. But what if I told you the majority of Christians walk around still enslaved with an attitude of slavery? What if they weren't truly, what if they have been set free but they live as still as a bondservant to their sin? And this is a message that's really very personal to me. Um, because I've shared a lot with my about my family and my past. You know, this is one of those messages that to me is God has used greatly in me, and it, it kind of comes out a little bit more. And it's, but there's also some assurances here for our minds help us to understand greatly what's going on here. Let's read the scripture. We're only going to be talking about about three verses of this this morning, but this is the context kind of of it. He says, and when you pray. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles or the pagans do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And we know this is called the Lord's Prayer. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Now, this is a passage of Scripture that we need to listen to and heed. Because in our doctrine we would say, if we're saved, there's nothing that can cause us to lose our salvation. And that is, this is not saying opposite of that. Ultimately, what is it telling us? Those who are truly saved, who have been forgiven, must forgive. Because that's the character of who we are. There's a couple of words here that's used. And, and I'm going to give you some, a little bit of Greek this morning. I mean, you don't have to keep up with it. If you ever want to know the Greek words, I can show you how to get to them. And you can learn a lot more about them. But the first one is ophelema. Which means that which is owed, that which is justly or legally due, a debt, an offense, a sin, 
when we talk about forgiving our debtors, okay? Important word here, and we're going to see the word application later on. The other one is uh, paraptima. Paraptima means to fall beside or near something. A lapse or deviation from truth and uprightness. A sin, a misdeed. This means those who have trespassed. We understand trespassing to an extent, extent, but what we're talking about is someone who has crossed a line. They have their foot has slipped. Okay? That's that kind of thing. And if I can't go into all the word phrases I would like to and word pictures I should say I'd like to use to help you see this, but ultimately these are those who have what? These are those who have sinned. Now, the scripture reference is obviously about forgiveness of sin. However, our Lord does not use the word sin here. So it makes me, I'm the guy who got in trouble in school, and it was hard for me growing up in church because I asked the question, why? Why didn't he just call it sin? It was sin. I mean, was our, was our, was our Lord Jesus really sugarcoating something, trying to hide something? Or was he meaning something very direct? Well, first off, we knew this. Sin requires payment in the form of restitution and restoration to God. So sin requires payment in the form of restitution and restoration to God. But understand, we cannot, we cannot pay the restitution on our own. Therefore, we cannot be restored on our own to God. I mean, there's nothing so good about us that God's like, you're the man. You're the reason. I, I mean, we've talked about this. So what? I'm going to quote a little bit of Rush to you this morning, but listen carefully and we'll get into the meat of this. Rush to you says, Only God the Son, Jesus Christ, is capable of making that restitution for us. It must be added that the context here is not related to salvation, but sanctification. Our Lord teaches this prayer to, his, to the disciples. It is the common prayer and, and pattern for prayer for all Christians. It sets forth the growth of their relationship to God in their terms of, faith, of their faithful obedience to His requirement in relationship to one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, let our hearts and lives witness to Thee, O Lord, of the grace we manifest one to another in Thee. So sin requires a payment that only Christ can pay. So here's the thing. Here's an important aspect, and we're going to teach this, is Christ became our jubilee man. And we're going to understand why he's called a jubilee man. Now there's a lot of Pentecostal, uh, a lot of Pentecostal apostolic churches that have their jubilees. But that's not what this is. That's not what it, they're not celebrating this. They're having they're having Sundays where they celebrate freedom, uh, freedom of the spirit. But that's not what this is about. Christ became our jubilee man, and Isaiah sixty one is talked about. It says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, freedom. To the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And I, I don't have a scripture here, but when John's, John sent his disciples ahead and say, Are you really the Christ? What did he say? 
he quoted from here. I am the one to set the captives free. Proclaim liberty to captives. Not only did Christ come to set us free as our jubilee man, but also we are sent to declare his jubilee to all men. We are sent to declare his jubilee to all men. We know the passage of scripture I'm going to go to is he tells us to what? Christ says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and disciple the nations. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything, to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He says, he says it's a message of freedom. Salvation is found in no one else. It's in Christ alone. Leviticus 25, 9-10 says, Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim, what? Liberty. Freedom throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now this is the Old Testament about the jubilee year of when we've taken and I bought, I bought because, of, because of poverty or what so what we, we bought land from someone and in the 50th year that land is to go back to the original owner. It belongs to God. It was given to a certain family, and therefore that land goes back to them. You paid them. You, you took this land, and you paid them to get them out of poverty. This is an aspect. Or you took it in, 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 uh, for a debt along those lines. But it's not yours. When the land is, because the point of the land is it doesn't sit there idle, is it? No. The point of the land is what? To be used to produce. And so you have benefited from the land. Now it's time. You've, returned, you've gotten your return on your investment. Now it's time to give, it back, give the land back to the people it belongs to. Uh, Rushdoony said, Restitution is made by the Lord the day of atonement. All debts are canceled and restoration follows. This is what the Lord's prayer means when it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is Christ's salvation followed by Christian reconstruction. We can contrast this petition with the prayer of the pagan of Apollonius of Tyana, who believed that the model prayer of all men with a right conscience should be, Give me, ye gods, what is my due. In such a view, it is God, not man, who is the debtor. Now here's where the problem comes in, and this is where we live most of our lives. What happens when someone sins against you? Most people today do not forgive, but they hold that person in debt to us. We hold them indebted to us. They might have said, I apologize, I repent, I was wrong, but they wronged us, and so what do we do? They owe a debt, and they have to give an answer for it time and time again. Christ came to set us free, and we are to be a voice. We are to, when it says, when we when it said in that passage, that we are to sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day. We are to proclaim that freedom. Freedom has come. Freedom has come, and all things have been restored. All things have been made right. And for us who are in Christ, it is in Christ Jesus alone. That is the the trumpet that we sound. Our also let's see is our jubilee is contingent on being a jubilee to others. 
our freedom, our liberty is contingent on being freedom to others. Liberty to others. This is not liberty to sin, but setting people free. Setting captives free. Setting those who are our debtors free. Matthew 6.12 says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is why I said I'm going to have a couple couple quotes of Rush to you, then we're going to break away from him, and then we're going to go back to him in a little bit. But I want you to hear this. Jubilee is a denial of karma, of endless, unremitting payment by man for his sins. It celebrates the remission of sins by the Lord's atonement, and it declares that the causality which rules the world is not our sin, but God's grace. By Christ's redemption, we are jubilee men and women. To pray this petition is to declare that we believe in the jubilee of Christ and want to be living trumpets of its liberty. And I say that, I know I just told you all that, but it's just how I get ahead of myself. But I want you to hear this. What we often preach, proclaim, or think is that, you know what? They'll get what they deserve. You know what? Most of the time, people get what they what you, we think they deserve because we make sure they do. We, we bring in this idea of karma. But the reality is, instead of being a people who believe that people will get their punishment, and we aid in people being trampled under feet, we ought to be a people of not only peace, but we ought to be a people of grace. And that's what he's saying. Christ has set us free. Therefore, we ought to be a people of who are living examples of setting others free. Proclaiming peace and grace. Secondly, sin. Sin has to do with debt. And this is where we're going to tie into what most people think of debt. And I quoted this and I put it on Facebook this morning as, as something that was just stood, has been standing out in my mind. But the word is debt, and we must not, as we consider its theological meaning, ever forget its basic economic meaning. Ancient Babylon built its empire on debt, a policy later used by Assyria, Assyria, Nahum 316. Before the armies marched, traders or merchants went forth, controlled by the ruler, to sell goods on credit. Very quickly, the morale of the nations was sapped and destroyed by debt living, and the nations were easily conquered. It is a great concern of mine, especially with our nation's debt, as we talked about, if someone called for payment, we have no way to pay. As it is. And could it not be that a pagan system is using something that other pagans had used in the past and debt a society to the point that we're too weak to take care of anything. Therefore, we probably should not be borrowing from pagan countries. I mean, we have set our record now of $20 trillion, over $20 trillion in debt for our country. We have, we, have, we have a bit to repay, don't we? But see, here's the thing. When we talk about indebtedness, this is how we're going to tie it in this morning. The Bible opposes long-term debt. It opposes long-term debt. 
Deuteronomy 15 is the example of this. It says, At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he's promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. This was the blessing aspect. The opposite is the curse. And what has happened is we have become a slave to the lender as a country. But we're not talking about our country today. I want us to understand this. The Bible opposes long-term debt. How many years are we to pay, our, are the pay, pay a debt? It's six years. In the seventh year, it's, let. It's, a, it's a Sabbath year. It's to be released. It's a good example. A, a good example is... Uh, it, that Henry and them used was they took a loan, for, they took a fi- owner finance for their land. For what? For six years. The goal was no interest and to pay it off. Okay? The, the, that's the point. Now, Romans 13 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one an- another has fulfilled the law. Now, here's the thing we're not talking about just loans. They're just going out there. We're not talking about just loans. Now, you saw that in that Deuteronomy passage. What did it tell us? That that uh, you that uh, on the for of a foreigner, you can exact it. You can require it. Right? That means someone who is outside of covenant. Someone who is outside the faith. But not of a believer. Not a follower. That's the that's B. Personal loans to fellow believers could be made without interest. I'm not saying could be. That's the only way that God. That's the only way that God placed it. They should be. They must be. I should say, must be without interest. And it's not because I think that's a great idea. Because I want somebody to give me money. That's not what we're talking about. What are we talking about here? Obeying Scripture. Personal ones, fellow believers, could, should be could be made without interest. Must be made without interest. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So what we're talking about is we are to we can exact interest upon the non believer, but we cannot upon the believer. And someone's like, Well, that's this seems to be two sided. No. I want you to understand why. Because everything in this world, everything all the earth and all that is in it, the fullness of, belongs to the Lord. And so for me to take from that person who is, let's just say is evil or pagan, not following God, for me to take that is to what? Not only to take it, but it's to put it back into God's kingdom and the furtherance of that. Now someone would say, you might go, well, you do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's why I will not, you, you don't want to be borrowing from the lost, from the pagan, because what they will do is make you a slave to them, and they will hold you. Now, I've been there. I've been had my, my head being pressed in a vice, and it's not fun. 
In fact, Deuteronomy 15, 7-11 says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the, your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your bro- poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there, another, under, be, lest there be an unworthy thought, thought in your heart, and so you say, the seventh year, the release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will be never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. I'm at, Although I've made the statement that I've made, is there anything that keeps you from lending to anyone without interest? Those who are not believers. No, because it says you may lend with interest and exact the interest. But it doesn't say you have to. I want us to understand why. And the core of this Deuteronomy passage is what the heart and the intent of man. Don't give begrudgingly. Doesn't that sound familiar to the New Testament? The Lord loves a cheerful giver, not someone who gives out of compulsion or someone who gives begrudgingly. They give because they love the Lord. Psalm 15, 5 even says, This is a person who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. These are a person who doesn't do these things is a, a person that's blessed. They shall not be moved. But we go on and I want you to understand, debt though, no matter what it is, debt is a form of slavery. And we are to be free men because Christ has given us liberty. Debt is always a form of slavery. There are many forms of debt that there are ways out from under. There are certain debts that are acceptable debts. But in all things, we ought to seek as quickly as possible to get out from under those debts. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. No matter what. I mean, I my 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 mother was sharing me with my, about my my younger brother, and his house is ruined. His house is basically, I mean, it's it had two foot of water standing in it. He didn't have flood insurance because it is never flooded. Never in that area has it ever had flooding. But they never had that much rain. And he contacted his bank, uh, his mortgage company, to see if he could have just a a short amount of time just to help maybe get some things and get things back on his feet. And they said, no, we expect you to pay your payment on time or we will take your home. You are a slave to the lender. There's no grace. There's no grace period on that. There's no freedom in that. It's why? Because for the lender has made an investment and tragedy strikes for them, but you're a slave to the lender. And, and I guarantee the way that their policy is, they're not believers. They do not have compassion. They do not have perseverance. And they will make sure that they get every dime. So the bank would prefer you to foreclose so they could resell the house. Debt is a form of slavery. So the rich rules over the poor, the borrower is slave to the lender. But First Corinthians goes on and says, you were what? You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. That's why this whole first that this point right here is debt is a form of slavery, and we are to be free men because Christ has set us free. In fact, John eight thirty six tells us what? If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So don't put yourself to become a slave again. 
as God gives opportunity for freedom, don't become slaves again. What did what did uh, what did Paul tell them in, in the Corinthians? Where be satisfied wherever you're at, wherever you're found, whether you're a slave, whether you're you're a spouse of an unbeliever, where God has placed you, you remain. If you've been set free, don't place yourself under those yokes of slavery. If there is a need, your brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be able to meet that actual need. Not a perceived need, but an actual need. They ought to be able to take care of one another. They ought to be able to provide for one another. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. Thirdly, intentional living in debt is a form of covetousness and practical atheism. Living in debt intentionally is a form of covetousness and practical atheism. See, it's forbidden to all believers by God's law. What is it? It is covetousness. I can't even say the word. Covetousness is forbidden to all believers by God's law. It's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And most people aren't concerned about their neighbor's pets, or their ox, or their donkey. But don't be coveting their home. Don't be coveting their lifestyle, their family. Don't be coveting, what? This truck, his job, all those. We think about all those things. We, we don't, oh, this doesn't apply anymore. Yes, it applies greatly because many people today live in extreme debt because of covetousness. That's what it is. You know, people say it's like called keeping up with the Joneses. No, they aren't trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're trying to one-up the Joneses. Remember living in a neighborhood, near a neighborhood, where everybody in that neighborhood had a $400,000 home, three or four brand new vehicles in the, every year, trading them in. And the debt keeps on going and going. Everything's paid with credit card, and I guarantee there's no way possible they make enough money to pay everything off at the end of the month. Debt upon debt and upon debt, and they have this lavish lifestyle. And what happens is everyone sees it. If we base everything we know based upon what everyone does around us, it's a lie. And we're not just jealous, we're not just envious, it's covetousness. And it's a practical atheism because of this. We don't trust God enough to provide for the very needs that we have and to bless us according to His will. We go out and we try to provide as if we are God. Luke 12, 15 tells us, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So it goes all the way from, You shall not covet all the way, Anything that your neighbor has, Anything anyone else has to this place of, Be careful, be on guard against it. Do y'all remember the very struggle that Paul uses to describe how although he tries to sin, he finds himself falling back into sin. He said it wasn't for the law who says, you shall not covet. And when I heard that, all types of covetousness rose up in me. That's what he says. 
Romans 13, 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what does that mean? I love my neighbor, therefore I don't do these things. I celebrate when my neighbor, when God blesses my neighbor, and my prayer is my neighbor, my brother and sister in Christ will celebrate when God blesses myself. And we share in those blessings, not by force, but because of our love for one another. We share, but we're not jealous of what others have, and we don't down what other people have. You know what? Most of us don't have certain things, not because we can't afford them. Most people don't have it because God, I believe this, God doesn't bless us a lot of times with things because He knows we can't handle it. We're not going to use it for His glory. We're not going to use it appropriately. And there's some people that will live in a life of almost near slavery all of their lives because of it. It's always, covetousness always leads B to debt, and its results are always evil. Covetousness always leads to debt, and its results are always evil. Remember, it's it's as if we're not satisfied with anything we have. We're not content with our lot, is what the catechism says. We're called to be content with what God has given us. Proverbs fifteen twenty seven says, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. And we're always looking to get ahead, to get one up. And I'm not saying just make it, make it survive. I'm saying when we're trying to do things unjustly. I had someone call me this week and ask me, point blank, is there any way you could write up the insurance claim, I mean, the estimate a little bit so I could get some other things done to the insurance company. I said, ma'am, that's called insurance fraud. It's a felony, and I don't want... I said, I'm a Christian, and I won't do it. I said, there are things, and there's ways around it for those things that are needed. But no, ma'am, I'm not going to lie. I've never... I've had anybody boldly just come out like that. Now, I don't know if it was a test. I don't know if someone was trying to check, check me out or what, but the reality is I don't care. It's a serious matter. It's even more serious when I'm if if, I, if my heart of hearts is I want such a, I'm so greedy to have so much more that I would do evil in the sight of God, and that's what it is. Proverbs twenty eight twenty: A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Does this mean that it's not okay to have have riches? Is it mean that this is not talking about not having money or having wealth? What is this talking about? Someone who hastens, that means they get it in such a way that it's not honest. They're, they're making things happen. It's like a good Ponzi scheme, right? It's dishonest game. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. People who seek after dishonest gain they will find themselves under a great evil and a great destruction. Not, and, and it really, it's not only covetousness, it's a form of pride. And we know Proverbs 16, 18 says what? Pride comes before destruction. See, it's punishment is sure. Covetousness, covetousness is punishment is sure. There's a lot of S's in that. It's punishment is sure. Joe 20.15 tells us he swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. What does he say about people who are greedy, who are covetous? You're either cold or you're hot. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you out. 
1 Corinthians 6.10 says, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is what it gets to that place. When we talk about indebtedness, this is that turnover, that moment that we need to listen to carefully. When we hold people to a form of, of indebtedness to us, not just financially, but more importantly, regarding sin. It says, if you won't forgive people their trespasses, nor will your Father in heaven forgive yours. Because it has to do with a characteristic of a people who have been forgiven. And a people who have been forgiven much regarding their sin are forgiving people. Gracious people. They don't hold others in debt. And the reason why is this. People who are greedy or covetous because of the free... You know, how many times I've seen people say, or heard people say, I should say, you look how these people, they're stealing and they're, they're evil, and look at how they're just being blessed beyond measure. They have all this money and have all these things. Yes, but when they fall, they fall greatly. And even in Scripture, I wish I'd looked this up. I meant to put it in here. But it, one of the things about the wicked, their riches will be left to the inheritance of the righteous. I had a brother who said his father-in-law was an atheist who more, I mean, probably, I don't believe anybody's an atheist, but I mean, I believe that everybody's an agnostic if they're not, if they don't believe in Christ. But ultimately what I would say this is not as an agnostic, his, his father-in-law had much wealth and he had two daughters. And when all the things would be said and done, they would just sell all the properties and all the things. And by the time he had millions and millions of dollars in property, and what he said is, he goes, I don't want anything from my father-in-law right now. But the day will come when he will die. And all that he has raised up under wickedness and paganism will be handed over for righteousness sake. Right now, it does no good. But one day, one day, it will be used for righteousness. Rushdie said the social consequences of debt include a covetous and inflationary society when men spend prospective and still future earnings in the present then as the present passes they are they are chained to their past spending by debt debt becomes a form of karma a past which governs the present and the future and produces a society with a closed future the slavery of debt binds man to the worst in their past their debt-living cripples their present and helps determine and limit their future. Our Lord uses the word debts because this is His primary meaning, but we know that the word includes trespasses because He says so in Matthew six fourteen through 15 To harbor hatred, hostility, grudges, and vengeance is to become past-bound and to preclude ourselves from forgiveness. Here again, we create the world of karma. The past controls all things. History, however, is not controlled by the past, but by the triune God. To allow the past to govern us, either by debt or by hatred, is to insist on the world of karma for all men, including ourselves. Whereas biblical faith requires us to be governed by God's law and grace, not by our past, its debts and its hatreds. Our present and our future is to not be ordered and governed by our past. And whether it be an economic debt or a spiritual debt, a debt in court according to sin and trespasses, we can't live in the past because it binds us to that past. 
And what happens is, if we have been set free, we've truly been set free as the Son has set, set us free, then we should not be living in that slavery. For us not to forgive leaves us in a place of unforgiveness ourselves. And we do it, that aspect, to us, ourselves. Fourthly, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And this word forgive is the word in the Greek, it's aphiemi. Aphiemi means to send away, to bid going away or depart of a husband divorcing his wife, a biblical version of that. To send forth, to yield up, to expire, to let go, to let alone, to let be, to disregard, to leave, not to discuss now of, of teachers, writers, and speakers, to omit, to neglect, to let go, to give up a debt, to forgive. It means to just wipe it out. What do we know? What does the Lord do with our, our sin? And upon our repentance is what? He forgives our sin and sets it what? As far as the east is from the west. The problem with us is, the problem with God is not, not that He forgets. Does God, does God forget? Can He forget anything? Absolutely not. That's not what that passage is about. And nor do, because we're in made in His image, we don't forget the sin of others. It's not about whether someone has sinned against us in the past. When His disciples asked Him, how many times am I supposed to forgive this person? And it says, whether you, whichever one it is, either 77 times or 70 times 7. It doesn't matter. What does that mean? As often as your brother sends you to you and comes in asking for, and repents and asks for forgiveness, we're to what? We're to forgive him. Because that is what we do to God. How many times have you gone to God for sin? Because of the past sin. You think 70 times 7? I guarantee in a lifetime... I can't tell you how many times I've hit my knees and other times I haven't had a chance to hit my knees but in asking for forgiveness because I knew I'd sinned against the Holy God. And what do we do? We expect Him to forgive us. Yet when our brothers and sisters who we know are weak, who are, we know are sinful, we know they're fallen, they come to us, well, let me pray about that. Which usually means you don't have much of a connection with God. See, it is conditional. Forgiveness is conditional on repentance and restitution. We come back to the same place we began with almost. It's conditional on repentance and restitution. Rushdie said, The sacrificial system tells us much in this respect. The believer, sinner, had to confess his sins and to lay them upon the unblemished sacrifice. He came bringing a gift, the sacrifice, to make restitution for his sins. The sinner thus must repent offer the restitution of Jesus Christ, and then live a life of faithfulness. He must live day by day in this faithfulness to Jesus Christ. His world must be governed by repentance and restitution to others and an openness to repentance and restitution from others. Forgiveness means that charges are dropped. Charges are dropped because satisfaction has been rendered. Or charges are dropped for the time being pending possible satisfaction. That means someone says, I repent and yea, I will do such and such. You remember Zacchaeus in the Bible. We always sing the little song. But what does he say? I will give back four times what I have stolen. You know what he said when he met? When he said he said that publicly in front of everyone. You know why everybody goes, uh huh, whatever. They didn't say that. You know what? What is it required to give back? Double. That showed what he says is, I have sinned, and I have. You are, you are giving all to me. And what does Zacchaeus say to him? I will go into poverty. 
I will give up everything I have taken, whether it have been honest or dishonest. I'll lose all the honest money for the sake of dishonesty in my sin because you said you're willing to go to my house to sit under my house and my roof today as a vile offender as I am. That's what he says. Restitution came from after repentance. Sometimes we have to wait and see if people will follow through. But ultimately, the debt is paid. It's done. It's over. That's what forgiveness means. It does not mean it's contingent upon whether I think you have repented enough. The judgment is God's judgment. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And I can tell you this much. As rotten as a worm as I am, he's forgiven me much, He will forgive others much. And I must forgive. And lastly, forgiveness is necessary because it's kingdom focused. Let's bring it back to the heart of the matter. It's kingdom focused. And that kingdom is not yours or mine. Matthew 6.10 is that, that Lord's Prayer. He says what? Pray this way. He says, and He says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer which precludes this forgiving, this act, act of forgiveness. See, God's kingdom is the world's future. And it must govern us now. Not past debts and evils, grudges and hatreds that we talked about. God's kingdom is the world's future. Do we, do we live in the past or we live always looking toward the future of what God is doing? We must be kingdom focused. We must be kingdom minded in every aspect, not just being fruitful and multiplying, but also in our forgiveness. Luke eleven four says, "And forgive us our sins." It's a, it's a beatitude in a different aspect in a different place, and there's something there that's specific here. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That word for indebted has to do with our sins, and that word sins is hamartia, which means to be without a share in. Means to everybody's to remember this is a place to miss the mark. When sin means to miss the mark, it means to miss the, the target. You don't hit perfection. To miss or wander from the path of a brightness, a brightness and honor. To do or go wrong. To wander from the law of God. To violate God's law. Sin. And yes, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. But I want you to understand, for us as believers in Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come to this place, we must also understand that we are to give, we all have come to a place of homardia. We all still have sin. There are people who believe in, perfect, or in the perfectionist movement that actually believe once you're saved, you never sin again. And you have no need to ask for forgiveness and there, I, I just, I had one, I, I remember sitting in a committee meeting one time and I, I had this lady go, they were talking about something, uh, we were talking about prayer uh, for forgiveness um, because we have sinned against others and they're like, she's like, I don't need to pray for forgiveness. Listen, when Christ saved me, he took away all my sin, past, present, and future, and I don't need to ask for forgiveness. He did it once for all. I said, you got part of that right, but it also says if someone says that they do not sin, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. That really doesn't go over really well in a Baptist committee meeting. Well, just calling it, calling it what it is. And I said, that in itself is sin, therefore you need to repent and ask for forgiveness now. If it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. We all sin. We all fall short of glory. But this is the thing. And we close with this. Clearly, debt and sin are associated by our Lord, as Rosh wrote, as representing a common evil. When debt and 
and when debt and sin, our sin or the sins of others, govern our conduct in life, we are pastor-oriented. We then pass from the world of God and His righteousness and grace into the world of this false pagan karma. The rule of karma is the unrelenting rule of evil. God then is set aside for the priority of evil since long-term debt and sin alike are evil. We submit to an essentially evil view of life. To live in terms of debt is to make a witness concerning our faith and worldview. The same is true if we live in terms of sin. If we insist that pragmatism, i.e. an acceptance of the necessity of evil as a tool for living, is inescapable. It is the denial of the government and providence of God in favor of an affirmation of karma. To pray this petition means that we reorder our lives in terms of the word of God. To live by faith means to live in terms of grace, not sin, and without covetousness and debt. And I give you an example of where I've lived and I've been for many years. It's not that my mother or my father are not worthy of my forgiveness. Or that they're indebted to me. But when, when error is pointed out that has caused the division, I have forgiven them whether they have spoken and asked for forgiveness or not. Because I'm going to tell you right now, every time I've talked about it, I've been told, I think we, I think we have a misunderstanding. And that's the last thing I want to hear. Because that's not when someone says, I think we have a misunderstanding. No, I understand exactly what has happened. But to forgive someone is to cancel that debt. But what must follow is what? There must be repentance. There must be true repentance. I can free myself of that person's indebtedness, but there must be repentance. And when someone comes to you and says, well, there's this misunderstanding. I think you've got it all wrong. No, there's two sides to this. Really. And you might be okay with what you've said, or maybe you're okay with what you've done, but it's wrong. It's sinful. And when someone comes to you and says, it's okay, you can forgive them. And leave. But the thing is, is the standing that they have in that moment doesn't mean you let them cross the line. Where they continue in that sin or continue to hurt, there's a standard. Because we'll see where it goes from here. Now there might be opportunities that are necessary in the future that I have to forgive you again for the same exact sin. But the thing is... I won't allow you to hurt my children. I won't allow you to hurt my family. I won't allow you to do these things because you know what? I don't have enough breath in my life to battle through this over things that I don't. It's not allowed the ministry that God gives each and every one of us. Sin and holding people, unforgiveness, should not keep us in a place of bitterness. I just have more things that need to go on. God has greater purpose than for me to sit and sulk over what my family has done or other co-workers have done or anything. It doesn't matter. I don't sit and sulk about any of it. Why? Because His, when we're kingdom focused, kingdom minded, we live in the past, we live under the indebtedness to sin of the past. When we keep our, kingdom, our focus on His kingdom and His purpose, what happens? We're constantly moving forward. We're looking for the next opportunity. We hold no debts upon anyone because we don't want to have to keep up with the books. Let's put it that way. It's hard keeping a record of wrongs, isn't it? Oh, wait a second. Isn't that in 1 Corinthians 13? Keep no record of wrongs? Oh, no, that's just for marriages and wedding ceremonies, right? Which has nothing to do with marriage and weddings. Love. For example of love is what? Keep no records of wrongs. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And we move forward in the glory 
of God and for His kingdom purpose. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.